in the 38 years since the United States has won four World Cup titles and four Olympic gold medals, making it one of the most successful national teams for the Americans. Those premier teams get a lot of love, but the 85ers, as they're known, have not. It wanted to be the world governing body of the sport, and yet it didn't want to recognize women's football. This has been a long, long journey, a story with many, many chapters. And it goes back long before this last year, long before 1999. And so I think the only place to start is by recognizing the very first U.S. Women's National Team in 1985. Welcome to a new series of Flame Bears, special edition U.S. Women's Soccer Originals, celebrating the first U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. I'm your host, Jamie, and I am beyond excited to be co-hosting this season with FIFA Player of the Century, Michelle Akers. Hey, team! In this series, we'll hear from the infamous 85ers, they blazed a trail at a time when women's soccer wasn't an Olympic sport and the Women's World Cup didn't even exist. We get to celebrate these badass originals who I am so proud to call myself a teammate of. These icons you don't know yet, but we're changing that. They're players who came from all over the country, some on scholarships, others playing different college sports because women's soccer didn't even exist at the time setting the foundation for what is now the biggest event in women's soccer this summer. Their stories have never been told until now. Now let's kick it off to today's episode. Kim Wyatt was the goalkeeper for the first U.S. women's national soccer team appearing in the inaugural U.S. game in Italy in 1985. She appeared 16 times for the United States. My name is Kim Wyant. I was the first goalkeeper for the U.S. Women's National Team. I recorded the first win in goal. I recorded the first shutout. Unfortunately, I recorded the first anterior ACL injury <laughs> in the team. <laughs> And um, I had my last international appearance with the team in 1993 as part of the team that won the CONCACAF championship. Kim, how did you get into soccer in the first place? It was purely by accident. I mean, I was a good, I was a good athlete. I played every sport in high school and I don't have any evidence of this, but I think my high school team started women's soccer, a women's soccer team because of Title IX, because just the, the start of the team is kind of suspicious. It was around 1980. And of course, Title IX was 1972. So we had a big football program. We had big sports programs on the boys' side. And we did have sports programs on the girls' side, but somebody decided to start a women's soccer team there. And literally the coach was walking around the school recruiting players for the team and after one of the basketball games he came up to me and said do you want to come out for the girls soccer team and I said sure Leah, why not I went out I remember walking out to the to the very first practice and I actually do have evidence of this because because we have pictures but I didn't have soccer cleats the only thing I had was 
these white softball cleats with like the steel studs. And so I, wa I walked out to the soccer practice with my white softball cleats on. So like I was way ahead of this like cleat revolution because yeah. back then you only wore black. Yes. And so the fact that I had white was like a total sin back then apparently. But now, you know, look, we got pink and orange and blues and all these cool colors. But I got to the field and I took one look at it literally and I said to the coach, I said, you want me to like run up and down this field like chasing the <laughs> soccer ball? He said, yeah, that's what I want you to do. Like, that's what you do. And I looked at him and I said, listen, if it's okay with you, I'd like to play as the goalkeeper. <laughs> Wise woman. <laughs> So connect the dots for us. How did you get from there to the national team? I was just at the right place at the right time, but I also had a lot of talent. Like I was really a good athlete. And luckily for me, I got with good people who helped just like crack open some doors for me. I was a, a very poor kid growing up with a single mom. And so this family where, where the coach uh, was coaching kind of took me in and also provided a lot of financial assistance for me to be able to take these opportunities. I was like on the first wave of these Title IX initiatives, I'm pretty sure. And then of course, women's soccer was starting in college and UCF was an early participant, one of the first participants to sponsor women's soccer. Again, I got exposure through playing club soccer. Linda Gansitano, saw me play also in Miami and she was already on the team at UCF and she went back and she told Jim Rudy about my talent and so then I started to get recruited by him so I had a lot of pe good people just come into my life at the right time and luckily I made good decisions so I ended up at UCF and Jim was very well known for his ability to coach soccer and specifically to develop goalkeepers that was an amazing like act of the divine, you know, having him as as a coach to develop you at that level. Divine intervention is a good way to put it because when I look back on my life and my career, I really did have amazing people come into my life at the right place at the right time and were willing to help me. And it wasn't a lot of help, it was just a little bit of help, but it made such a huge difference in my life, like a huge difference. With Jim, he was able to take my complete raw talent and just make it better. And then women's soccer was growing. The first women's national teams were starting to develop in the early 80s. In fact, there was a paper team in 1983. There was a paper team in 1984. And then the 85 team was selected at the National Sports Festival in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And then off we went to our first international matches in Italy. Uh, so it was like, it was like that simple. <laughs> yeah. And the, the cool thing too about UCF, cause I, what you, I came in 1984. And so what you were a junior. Correct. Yeah. yeah you were a junior. Years, so yeah. what was unique about this environment too, which I, I, I just thought everyone did it, but it, it was unique to Jim Rudy and this program was the, the the goalkeepers train together. So for our training sessions, the goalkeepers would go from one to two and the guys and the girls would train together uh, and Jim Rudy would train them. And then there was two to four 
the women would train and then four to six, the guys would train. And so to have the opportunity to train in with the guys and compete with uh, against the guys, because then like I would go out to goalkeeper practice to shoot and then there'd be guys out there shooting with me. Um, so it was this, uh, you know, mixed environment that accelerated the competitiveness and the performance for us, for the women, especially because we're playing against these college age guys. So that that was amazing. And then Jim Rudy was also part of informally the national team and training the goalkeepers later on. So uh, it's mind blowing that we had that luxury, right? Uh, I think at UCF, it was part of the development and what, what uh, raised us to the next level as players and part of the elite in women's soccer. I think that's a really good point. And I do, I do mention that often when I, when I speak is uh, it's not, it's not allowed anymore where you can co-mingle men and women in NCAA soccer. So I was also a benefit of like not having these early rules. And I, I always tell, I train with the boys and we, the women and the men train together. Uh, inevitably, it was always the the male players that wanted to come out for extra shooting practice until uh, Michelle showed up on campus. And then it was always uh, Michelle out there, may, maybe a few of the other women. And let me tell you, the guys, to, to much appreciation, there was never, ever any let's take it easy on mm. these women. It was... We're going to treat everybody the same and as players and to, to Michelle's point, I think it, it did help accelerate in my, um, in my development. The other point I'll make just to give Jim Rudy his credit is aside from placing three players on the women's national team, the first team, which was me, me, Michelle and Linda, there was only one other college that did that, which was Chapel Hill. He also coached two, three goalkeepers that went on to the women's national team. Myself, Amy Bauman, and uh, Brianna Scurry. And then of course, um, you know, I always say his legacy even goes down because Amy coached Hope Solo at the college and kind of discovered her talent and helped develop her talent. So his legacy is quite impressive, I think, uh, with the women's national team. Yeah, absolutely. And Kim, I I mean, I, as a freshman coming in, I, well, first of all, I was like floored by the, how just strong the, these, my teammates were just strong in all ways, personality and competitiveness and, and leadership and wanting to win and demanding performance out of everyone else on the field. I, I remember Mary Varis yelling, if you don't fucking want to run, get off the fucking field. And, and I, <laughs> She wasn't saying it to me, thank God. But I remember just going, I, I don't know where I'm supposed to run. I'm just going to do it fast and never stop. But you as a player, that was the first time I saw a female getting into the upper 90s. I mean, it was amazing watching her and the athleticism she had and, and then pulling out these saves that were you know, equal to these guys diving all over and covering the goal. So Kim, you were an incredible athlete and, and you worked your ass off. So uh, that, it, was a, it was amazing to be on that team and watch you compete. So Super how did you cool. get from there to the 85 team and then, and then beyond? It was a series of decisions that had to be made, which I'm always so curious about is 
you know, who at U.S. Soccer was really behind starting the women's national team. And I'd I'd love those people need to be uncovered and they need to really be celebrated because obviously it gave me an enormous opportunity to, again, just grow as a player and to grow as a person. I'd never been out of the country. And so here I was now, you know, on my first international trip with the U.S. Women's National Team. And so it was sparse. There was obviously uh, the one thing that I like about being a part of this legacy is when people hear that I've been a part of the women's national team, they automatically think like the women's national team is like it is today. Like I was this big celebrated star, you know, on TV and making all this money and and having uh, all these endorsements. And of course, you know, it wasn't like that at all. It was it was very very humble, humble beginnings for many many years. Even you know up through the '99 team, that's when it really exploded. But before then, there was. 14 years of really blood, sweat, and tears by a lot of players sacrificing a lot to be a part of this team. Tell us about that. Kim and Michelle, you were both a huge part of that blood, sweat, and tears. What was that like for you? I mean, women's soccer back then was literally like a, a soccer desert. It was the, the, the only playing environment for players that were the baby boomers and believe it or not I'm considered to be a baby boomer because like I'm the last year of the baby boomer generation the 90 you know so those playing opportunities were super sparse and it was really in the college game that the women's soccer I think ignited and really took took hold and, and took ground but once you finished with your college playing career it was very very difficult to find games and so I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining, but it was, it was inevitable that it was going to be hard for a person like me, who was a little bit older, to stay competitive in the women's game because I wasn't getting a steady diet of 20 games a season, like if you were a college player. And so for me personally, because I love to play and I love to compete, I created like my own environments to play in. I trained as much as I could. I actually trained with the Orlando Orlando Lions men's team, which I think Michelle, maybe you had jumped in with some training sessions. Yeah. Yeah. And there was this competition for women's amateur soccer, which was the amateur cup, which was like a nationwide tournament of senior women's teams that culminated in a, in an amateur cup championship. And I would organize a team every year to compete in this competition, which there wasn't enough women senior teams usually to advance out of your state. We would usually play nobody. So we would advance out of our state and go directly to the regional championship. And our region was, you know, all the way out to Texas, up to North Carolina. So we might have gotten one or two or three games just in that one competition before you got knocked out because it was single elimination. And it was um, organizing players. It was raising money to go on trips to Texas or North Carolina. One year we, I don't know, I think we went to St. Louis or something for, for one of the finals. And it was it was just scraping together 
environments to to try to play and try to stay fit. And on, on top of that, I had a full time job because <laughs> I had to feed myself. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so similar. The, and the West Coast and Northwest, especially, had it seemed like a deeper. I don't know. There were a deep, deeper resources for women's soccer and uh, that the Cozars and there was the Seattle Sounders with the NASL were embedded in the community. And so there was this kind of culture built in the Northwest that wasn't there yet in Florida. And so I had actually more teams to play for club teams to play for than Kim did because there was over 30 women's teams in, wow. in Washington state. And there wasn't anything like that in, in Florida yet. So how did it come to be? So I graduated 89 and then I went and played a semi-pro in Sweden to have a team to play with like every week to like train, right? But it's so interesting, just the three or four years. Tell us about the 85 team. What did it mean to you to be a part of that original team? And frankly, why why does it matter? I mean, being a part of that team is one of my proudest moments, really, in my career. It's always probably going to be at the top, like number one. I recently had a moment with my coaching career that is bumping up to standing, you know, being the first goalkeeper standing on the field when the national anthem was played for the very first women's national team. It's a moment that I remember like it was yesterday. I can describe a lot of things about the stadium and about the environment. That moment was incredible for me. It was really incredible. I was super proud. And I think I knew it at the time, but I didn't really realize it was 20 years old that this was pretty amazing. Like what I had done, you know, it was, it was like pretty amazing what we all had done in order to get to the stadium and get get to the first game. And there had been a lot of talk about the women's national team. There had been a couple of paper teams. There was always this chatter about it. And so to finally see it happen, I was, uh, I continued to be just like super proud of it. It was humble, but we didn't, we didn't know any better. And when you look back on it, you say, well, we had hardly any uniforms and we, had $10 a day and like what they call per diem. They did feed us like in the hotel and stuff. It's a super, super humble beginning. But on the flip side of that, I always say that you had to start somewhere. We had to start somewhere. And thankfully we started and we rejoined women's international soccer. It, it had already been sort of reignited in the, in the late 70s, 80s. There, there was this whole underground current of women's soccer happening as well. The, the histories uh, are starting to uncover a lot of significant women's international stuff happening. And so I think we, as a country, got involved at the right time, you know, to really yeah. then become a dominant soccer country, at least on the women's side. What do you remember from your trip with the 85ers? We had 17 players. And for the games, only 16 could dress. This is what I remember being told. And I recall, Michelle, you were injured. Yeah. You were, something was going on with your ankle. And incredibly, the very first game for the U.S. women, Michelle was sitting in the stands. 
because she couldn't even dress and be on the sideline or she didn't dress and she wasn't on the sideline. Yeah. And I had this, I was a little bit into photography and I had this Minolta 35 millimeter camera, which I still have. Cool. Yeah. And I remember, cause Michelle and I were roommates on that trip. And I remember handing Michelle my camera and I said, can you snap some pictures from the stands? Yeah. And no so question. Michelle, you, <laughs> you <laughs> took a bunch of pictures, which I have, like I have the pictures that you took oh my God. with the camera. Yeah. And it's like always wild to me that, you know, you're taking like pictures of the very first women's national team sitting in the, in the stands. Mm -hmm. It's just so crazy when you think about it. Yeah, it is. It, and to me, uh, of course, I wanted to play, but like Mike Ryan had had benched me that year in the national <laughs> championships because he said, oh, Michelle, only play with your right foot. And I was like, well, I don't think so. He said, I'm going to bench you if you play with both feet. And I, so I got benched in the national championships for, for the women's side uh, for a game because of that. So I, I was thinking I was benched because of that for that first game, but it was, it was because I had a sprained ankle. I came in with a sprained ankle, but Mike Ryan, he like, and out of everything, he was a hothead and he would yell instructions and the spit would be flying. And he, he was very passionate about winning. And he understood though, what it meant to play for the U to your national team, US national team, Ireland, right, was his team and he he is the one who impressed upon me when he made us sing the national anthem on the field that hey you're playing for your country and this is this is super special so for me to sit in the stands and watch you guys i already felt like a little kid there and so to take pictures seemed perfectly normal to me <laughs> as it was i was taking pictures of you and gansitano and sharon mcmurtry who are people i i idolized Clearly, everyone has someone they look up to. Given that Kim is a mom, we wanted to sit down with her two daughters and get their perspective on their mom, Kim. My name is Danielle Burtis-Warrant, and she is my mother. My name is Alex Burtis-Warrant. Kim is my mom. <laughs> Growing up, did you know about your mom being on the first national team? Like, what did that mean to you? Well, it means a lot to me because I started to realize like how cool it actually was when I, I got a little bit older and I joined this, you know, I joined Surf Soccer Club. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I talked to my teammates and I, you know, I was like, yeah, my mom, she played for the first national team. And, you know, they were like, wow, that's like really cool. And I was like, yeah, you know what, you're right. It, <laughs> it is really cool. <laughs> and it makes me so proud and like it sets an example for me too because she the amount of obstacles that you know she had to go through she she grew up in Miami you know it there there wasn't a lot you know her high school had the first soccer team when she was there so she she kind of pushed through so I knew but it when I was younger it didn't really click to me how important that it was until about four or five years ago and when I fully realized and like it processed in my brain, it was kind of shocking. And I was 
very surprised and amazed at how she was on the national team. Yeah, Talk about I, NYU. I mean, you're holy shit, Kim. You're the head coach at NYU of the men's team, which shouldn't it in my mind. I'm like, well, that shouldn't be like big news, right? It should just be a normal thing, but it isn't a normal thing. And um, you're the first to compete in a national championship and and win, right? I didn't win, but I. Uh, well, we can we can t- we can talk yes. a little bit more about the historical record, at least what what I know about it. Um, yeah. Listen, I mean, I never set out to 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 make history. Like, if if I had right. said twenty or thirty years ago, like I'm going to be coaching a male's college soccer team in you know 2015, I never like had that hmm. goal. But I just found myself again at the right place at the right time. I had been coaching for a lot. I'd been doing a lot in the game of soccer. So obviously I was super qualified and able to take on this role. And I have to always give a lot of credit to NYU because they have a leadership team in place at the university where having a female head coach of a male team is not really a big deal to them. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of female leadership. We have our female president right now at the university. But, you know, at the time that I took over the the men's team, I think it was like 15 of the 20 deans of the schools were females. Wow. So female leadership was all over NYU. And it wasn't like a big shift in in this decision. So I had an opportunity to poach. And that's really the bottom line. I mean, it was definitely a little bit of a messy situation and it was definitely going to be different, but coaching is coaching and the game is the game. And it's not as if the female game plays on a different size field or plays with a different size soccer ball or plays with different numbers of players. It's the game is the same. And of course, you know, the the movement is different and the, the, the tactics can be different, but uh, coaching is coaching and I'm not out there running up and down the field with the players. I'm on the sideline using my brain. That's what the coach is doing. So I said before that of my accomplishment of being the first goalkeeper for the team, I would say that like what I'm doing now bumps right up to, to that achievement in, in terms of my career. I recently had the chance because the soccer community added another female coach in men's soccer last year. And she happened to be coaching in the same conference that I compete in. And so we had this historic game that happened in October of last year, where it was believed to be like the first time where two male teams were competing against each other, yet they were led by female coaches. And so this was a big deal for the university. It was was a big deal for me. It was a big deal for my family, hopefully for Coach Sitch as well. And I mean, this was a really, really special game. Very, very special for for me. I could talk for hours about this, but Coach Sitch at the University of Chicago went on to win the Division III national championship in men's soccer last year wow. with the with the University of Chicago. 
and she went undefeated with her team. However, the only team that she couldn't beat was my team. There you go. Nil nil. Yeah. And I always just get such a kick out of that, that the only team that she couldn't beat was was NYU. I'm super happy and proud of her and, and what she did. But to, to be a part of that was quite amazing. To close up, Danielle and Alex, why is it important people hear your mom's story? I think, you know, history in, in general is really important. And it shows because, you know, they're, they're the foundation. And you need a strong foundation to come up with any sort of, you know, when you're building a house, you, you need that strong foundation. And they were that strong foundation to what soccer has grown to today. I mean, we have the women's team and they're doing really great in the World Cup this year so far. So you can see also the fights that they go through today with equal pay. And this all started with the first team going on that first, the first trip to Italy in their, their very first game. So I think it's, it's really important because, you know, you can't grow without knowing where you started and the history and you need to you need to know it to make it better, which I think they've actually done a really great job at doing. Thanks for tuning into Flame Bears and massive thank you to my amazing co-host, Michelle Akers. If you would like to send a letter or a video of thank you or support to Kim Wyant, please send it to Marissa P at flamebears.com. That's Marissa, M-A-R-I-S-S-A, P is in Potter at flamebears.com. Thank you, and we'll catch you on our next episode.